know anyone in Las Vegas who's happy with their internet service? I mean, even if it works, we're all paying out the nose for it. So why? And how did we get here? Today on CityCast Las Vegas, we're talking with Sean Gonsalves. He's a researcher at a nonprofit who says we should be treating the internet like a public utility. Stay tuned, though. Tomorrow, we'll hear from someone in Nevada state government who has a different take. It's Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. I'm David Figler, and this is CityCast Las Vegas. Your title's a bit of a mouthful. You're a senior reporter for the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and you're focused on the Community Broadband Networks Initiative. <sighs> right. Take a breath. <laughs> Welcome to CityCast Las Vegas, Sean Gonsalves. Yes, thank you. Sean, Las Vegans complain about a lot of things, but one of the things that maybe is the loudest is the expense and reliability of internet access. Why is our internet so bad and so expensive to many? Well, first of all, folks in Las Vegas are not alone. There are people in cities across the country that have that very same question. I think it can be summed up in three words, lack of competition. We have Mm -hmm. a broken broadband market that are dominated by monopoly or duopoly, however you want to phrase it, interests that wield a tremendous amount of power. And when you're the only ball game in town, there just simply is not very much, if any, incentive to invest in network upgrades, to compete on pricing or reliability. It's kind of like, hey, take it or leave it. And they've got us really over a barrel because in this day and age, although it's not technically considered or legally considered a utility, it it sure does feel like one. Mm. Almost as important as electricity or, or access to water. Yeah, and I understand what you're saying about monopoly. I think in Las Vegas, we, we've got two. We've got Cox and CenturyLink. Yes. Those seem to be the two big broadband providers. So what's that called, a duopoly? A duopoly, yeah. Ah, okay. But, you know, I mean, a monopoly, duopoly, I mean, I think most folks get that monopoly isn't so much about the number. It has more to do with power. And so when you're these two giant national cable or telecom companies, your business model is to extract wealth out of local communities for the benefit of your shareholders. Well, how did Las Vegas end up with a duopoly? Why is it so hard for other companies to come into our market? Well, to build the infrastructure is not cheap. If you're a smaller company, it's very difficult without some form of subsidization, without some form of grants, et cetera, to raise the upfront capital that you need to build these networks, particularly in a market that already has a network in place. And so historically, it's been these telecom giants that have built these private networks in kind of a cherry picking fashion. So their business model is really based on how do we zero in on those neighborhoods and communities that can afford to pay a premium for internet service Mm. and then scraps for everybody else. That's been the case, you know, in broadband markets across the country for decades now, which is one of the reasons why we, you know, we get so excited about community broadband networks because it's an alternative model. It's one where much like roads or schools or water systems, municipalities build and operate their own broadband infrastructure. Well, before we get too deep into the policies that sort of stem out of having a duopoly in in a city like ours, 
let me cover some fundamentals. What is broadband? What does that word even mean? Explain to me like I still own a flip phone, which by the way, I'm just one more frustration with my smartphone away from. So make it make it easy. Yeah. Broadband is always on internet access. And it basically, I mean, it's a little bit more complicated than this, but it basically refers to this, your connection and the speed at which you're able to connect to the internet. And mm. so the federal government's minimum speed for it to be considered broadband is 25 megabits per second download, three megabits per second upload, which is essentially, nobody really cares about the speed, put it this way. There's no one I'm, I'm sure that knows anything about this that will disagree that a 25.3 connection is not really sufficient for the average household in terms of when you just think about the number of devices in your house or in a family that are connected to the internet. Sure. And particularly streaming now, and all that. streaming, gaming, Zoom meetings, distance learning. You might have to have two Zoom meetings in the household at one time. If you've got a 25-3 connection, that's going to be difficult, if not impossible. So the FCC has defined broadband that that minimum speed at 25.3 for about a decade now people have been saying that's laughable and they should up that speed and unofficially in the broadband bill itself really they sort of have raised the minimum speed of broadband to be 100 over 20 and that's the kind of connectivity that that folks really kind of need most americans get their internet access through a cable provider through a monopoly cable provider which does pretty good on the download side of things. Uh, on the upload, there's real challenges. And upload has become increasingly important because nowadays we're not just sort of surfing the net to shop and downloading information, even if we're downloading movies or streaming movies. It's much more important now, particularly where you have smart devices in homes, you need that upload capacity to send the information from these devices upstream, whether that's in a Zoom meeting where you have to upload video information or if it's a smart home with thermostats, et cetera, all of those kind of things. If you're talking about telehealth, you need upload capacity for, right. for you to have the kind of connectivity that you really need. And Sean, one of the things that you mentioned was uh, coverage areas. And usually when we talk about coverage areas or areas that are being neglected, uh, it often comes up that it's areas that are more impoverished, sometimes communities of color mm -hmm. in those areas, et cetera. Is the infrastructure and the coverage, is that something that's an easy fix or how does that work? It's not technically difficult. In other words, you know, it's not particularly rocket science to figure out how you get reliable connectivity to each resident or business. It's really one of political will or, or, and or the economics of it. So if you're a private company, it's about can you make a business case to build out a network to a particular in a particular community? And how are you able to extend that to people in the community that might not be able to afford it at the price point that you're selling it, which is why so many municipalities end up building their own network community-wide because they see this and, and understand this as a fundamental public utility. If your business model depends on making a certain amount of money in the short term, it, you may not be able to make a business case to build out, for example, a fiber network across an entire community. You might be able to only make a business case for building it out to, you know, the wealthier neighborhoods. But when you're but those social inequity issues are still going to come up, and and maybe sure. the the municipalities have to get involved in the conversation. Yes. Okay. So you mentioned fiber. What what is the fiber? And technically, who owns the fiber? <laughs> I feel that's like Dune. Who owns the spice? But right. yeah, yeah, who owns exactly. the fiber? What's no, the fiber? I, I just watched that movie, the new version of Dune, just the other other night. 
who owns the spice? So in Las Vegas, these are private networks. They're owned by, you know, either CenturyLink or Cox. Fiber itself is the gold standard of internet connectivity. It's the most reliable, fastest connectivity uh, out there. I mean, no one disagrees with that. Fiber, they call it future-proof because fiber tends to last for decades. I mean, there's fiber that we're still using in this country that's been, been around since the 60s. Fiber networks are the most expensive to build up front, but they're cheaper to operate and maintain once you build them. So fiber essentially are hair-like strands of glass. And so they shoot those ones and zeros through the glass at the near speed of light. You know, our internet backbone that connects to the various data centers where all of the stuff that we find online actually physically lives. They're connected by a bunch of middle mile networks, which are a little bit closer to where we live in our homes and businesses. And then what you and I are talking about here are what they call last mile networks, which is how does that connectivity get from that middle mile fiber connection to where to, you are, to where you are. And Got there's it. various technologies. Cable companies have their, they have this thing called Doxus. It's kind of this hybrid fiber coax system. And then you've got increasingly most new networks that are being built are fiber networks. What okay. they call and fiber just to, to the home networks. And and just to give our listeners a clearer sense of what's going on, we've got all these different kinds of physical infrastructure that brings internet to the people, all the things you're talking about, dishes, cable, fiber. But it sounds like that physical infrastructure is just mostly, especially in a place like Las Vegas, privately owned. Is that yes, right? That's, yes, that's correct. So let me ask you this, just straight up. Why does your organization advocate for locally owned municipal networks for bigger cities like us? Why isn't increased competition in the market enough to fix the kind of things that you're talking about? That's a great question. And actually, we think that community broadband networks do, of course, bring competition because they're, you're building them in areas that are theoretically served by some of these bigger companies. So the, there's that aspect, bringing the competition. And then there's things that are called open access networks. And that's where you really get to the heart of competition. So open access networks are fiber networks that are built and owned by a municipality, but they then lease out the fiber network to whatever in private internet service provider wants to use the network. And so they're popping; these are popping up all over the country. In the state of Washington, the public utility districts have built out fiber networks. And in some communities, you have a choice of 12 different internet service providers mm -hmm. who are competing just on price. And so when you build that open access infrastructure, you're lowering the barrier for entry for new entrants to come into the market. So in that regard, that's one of the reasons why we advocate for them. But on the other hand, it's much more fundamental uh, to us, which is about having that local say and local control and, and the different incentives. It puts communities in a position to be able to ensure that everyone in your community has access and not just those that can afford it. It also speaks to reliability. These fiber networks, one of the reasons why these companies don't like municipal networks is they consider them an existential threat. They also know that if, they're, if it's a cable system or if, they, if it's a company that offers DSL, they're not going to be able to compete on reliability and certainly not on price. So they go out of their way to discourage communities from even letting this thought pop into their head. But then there's also innovation that comes from some private companies. I mean, we, sure. we hear about like Verizon as a mobile carrier when they launched 5G home internet in Las Vegas in 2021, they didn't need city-owned fiber to do that. A private company brought that in without the city helping? 
Right. I mean, in terms of just like any other company, I mean, Verizon certainly didn't invent 5G. And in reality, 5G is really more of a marketing thing. 5G doesn't really exist. It's 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 a marketing trick to. Uh oh. Yeah. Well, you're you're a reporter, so you know. I'm going to trust you on this. I just I just think it's either something really good or something really dangerous. <laughs> That's a whole nother conversation, and it's not to even to take a gratuitous knock at Verizon. I mean, look, we're in favor of everyone having access to affordable, reliable internet access, whether it's via a private company or a community network. We're certainly not saying that every single large city or city or municipality in the country had better build their own network. It's an alternative. And for a number of cities, something more targeted might make more sense. And they don't have to be fiber networks. They could be high capacity wireless networks. Some of the larger cities in the country, they're starting to look at more targeted approaches. So for example, in Detroit, they're building an open access network in a particular part of the city where there's a lot of low-income people, and during the pandemic, they actually experienced an internet outage that lasted for six weeks. Oh, my. Detroit said, you know what? This is unacceptable, and we're going to build an open access network in that part of the city to not only address those connectivity needs, but to also plant the seeds for greater competition in the market, which, which of course, you know, brings down prices for end users. Right. And so run. summing it up, I mean, and I think you've you said it explicitly, it's really like treating the internet as a utility where you could have these public-private, for lack of a better word, partnerships or at least yes. arrangements. Mm -hmm. And you, you kind of solve some of these issues that you're talking about. But what do you think would happen in Las Vegas if we built our own municipal network? But besides the fact that CenturyLink and, and Cox would launch an over my dead body campaign, okay, <laughs> that would that would be one thing that you could definitely expect to see. And then, you know, then you start to get into the arguments about whether or not cities should be in the internet business or whether it's worth the investment. As if you know, sidewalks and streets and schools weren't more expensive. It's like nobody ever asked that question. Like, oh well, how much money are we going to make off of the sidewalks or the roads? Plenty of concrete companies that make money off of the contracts too. I mean. People Absolutely. get paid when there's infrastructure. <laughs> yeah, so. No, no question. All I'm saying is, is that it's a whole different conversation in the run-up. It's not very often that you hear folks make the argument to not build roads or sidewalks or build public transportation because it's not profitable. You don't, yeah. you don't hear that argument. You, you'll hear that when it comes to this particular topic. Well, and speaking of this particular topic, your agency has Nevada on its radar. That's how we found you. Yeah. Why didn't Nevada show up on the radar? <laughs> so believe it or not, there are 17 states in the country that have preemption laws on the books that actually either outright ban municipalities from building their own broadband infrastructure, or they erect barriers that make it essentially impossible to do so. Uh -oh. And these laws are, I mean, literally written by a big telecom and then implemented by state lawmakers. And so Nevada is a state that has preemption laws. They, they vary from state to state. In Nevada, I believe it's that any municipality that has more than 25,000 people simply can't build a municipal broadband network. Who, okay. who benefits from that? Well, Cox loves that law. My last question for you is, are there model cities that Las Vegas can look to for inspiration when it comes to getting better, faster, and cheaper internet access? Sure. I mean, you're going to want to look at a range. So there's a city like Chattanooga. Chattanooga is the golden child of municipal networks. They invested $220 million to build out uh, a fiber to the home network across the entire city. And an independent study that the University of Tennessee did found that that network has reaped 
that city a $2.7 billion return on investment just in terms of what it's meant for economic development, et cetera. And so, for example, when the pandemic came along, you know, they weren't freaking out like a lot of other communities. They already yeah. had the fiber connectivity and without having to use the affordable connectivity program that, that exists now to help low-income families get online, they're able to offer fiber service for free to all low-income households in their area, which is about 17,000 families, for free for a decade. Tennessee is one of the states that have preemption laws, but one of the loopholes is that if you have a municipal-owned utility, you can do broadband. And that's what Chattanooga did, and it put them in a great place to, to do that. They have a municipal utility, and they were able to overbuild their municipal utility fiber network and, and extend it to, to reach everybody in the city. But there's far Texas that's right now building a fiber to the home network. There are cities like Detroit, uh, mentioned earlier, in L.A. County that are right now looking at a much more targeted approach about how they can leverage the federal funds that their city is getting and target particular areas in their community where Internet access is a real – there's real barriers to it. There's a range of things because now in our society, of course, Internet connectivity touches on pretty much every aspect of our lives. So most people, I think, see it as a fundamental utility to participate fully. In modern society, although it's not technically classified as such, it's certainly nearly as important as access to water or electricity. Sean Gonsalves, thank you so much for uh, sharing this with us, and uh, good luck with the Community Broadband Networks Initiative as you uh, kind of tap into cities all over the country, right? That's right. That's right. It's been a pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. Hey, we're not done with this topic yet. Tomorrow, we're following the news of the big federal money coming to Nevada for broadband investment. We'll be talking with Brian Mitchell, director of the Nevada Office of Science, Innovation, and Technology. Brian's got his own take and says local municipal networks might not be that answer. You don't want to miss it. All right, here's a couple of things you should know before you go. It's been a year since the year's deadliest car crash killed nine people, seven of them members from the same North Las Vegas family. To honor the victims and raise awareness of reckless driving, the city of North Las Vegas has planted a memorial tree in Craig Ranch Park. Meanwhile, it seems like every day Las Vegas makes another list. This new one says that we're America's 19th dirtiest city. Oh, and not the good kind of dirty that tourists like. Now, this survey measures pollution, landfills, living conditions, stuff like that. At least we're one ranking better than Hollywood. Oh, Henderson also made the list, but they're way down at number 66. And that's all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. If you got a friend who complains about their internet connection, or if you took too much time to buffer this episode, send them this one. Yeah, then rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news and such from around the city. We'll talk then. <laughs>